Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back. Today we're going to talk about this term, the Septuagint, which was featured right at the end of last week's reading of the Catechism Selection. And then we're going to talk about the three transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, how God is the perfection of these three transcendentals and how we are made to participate in each of them in our lives. On the second half of the episode, then, we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 214 through 248. All right. So we begin by talking about this term, the Septuagint. Recall that the Bible, while one book, is actually a library of 73 books. So the Bible features different authors, different genres, different styles, but they all contain, all each and every one of those 73 books contain the one truth. So the each book of the Bible contains the divine revelation that God wants us to receive. There are 46 books in the Old Testament, and all of those books were written before the time of Christ. So from about 1200 to 165 BC. So the Old Testament was written almost a couple hundred years before Christ was born. Then the 27 books of the New Testament were written after Christ. So the first line of the Old Testament was written in the year 50, and the last line of the New Testament was written somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D., There are lots of other books, uh, were lots of other books floating around, but some were considered inspired, aka the Word of God, while others were not. Some of those books that were not considered inspired uh, were fine. They were just not considered uh, to be inspired by the Holy Spirit from the church's view. Other of those books had glaring errors in them. So you might um, be familiar with certain programs or certain authors uh, or certain stages, I guess you could say, where there's often this perception created that, you know, the church is holding out on you. There are other books of the Bible that could have been included, but the church kept them out. So I'm thinking of, you know, specials on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, and then things like, you might be familiar with the author Dan Brown, who wrote books such as The Da Vinci Code, um, where, you know, they'll often claim that there are books of the Bible that the church kept out um, and doesn't want you to know about. If you just take a look at some of those books that were not included in the Bible, uh, that the church took a look at and considered or determined, "Mm, maybe that's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, some of them, again, have these glaring errors. So I like to use the, the example of the Gospel of Thomas, which says that men and women are not equal. Uh, Women are inferior to men. So in order to get into heaven, women must become men first, and then they can enter heaven. So I imagine the church took one look at that book and was like, I don't think that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, But again, you know, certain authors and programs will kind of portray it as this like mysterious, uh, you know, secret where the church is holding out on you and doesn't want you to know the full truth. When in reality, the church was like, eh, don't think that's inspired. So 
recall um, two terms that we've now used a number of times, the font of divine revelation and the tripod of truth. Each of these terms refer to three things working together. So sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium all work together to hand on the truth without error so that in 2022, we can receive the same truth that Jesus Christ was preaching in 33 AD. So first, recall that in the analogy of the font of divine revelation, there are two springs in the font, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. God reveals himself in two ways, through the written word and through the spoken word. And recall that last line from the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 21, verse 25, where he writes, there are also many other things that Jesus did, but if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that would be written. Okay, so God reveals himself through scripture and tradition. It is not, cannot all be written down. Secondly, recall it's the magisterium that receives, safeguards, and then teaches that divine revelation. So part of the teaching is, quote unquote, unwrapping, unpacking, and taking out the various pieces of the deposit of faith. So one of the times that the church has done this was in determining what's known as the canon of scripture. That term canon simply means a measuring standard, okay, a general law, rule, principle, or criterion by which something is judged. So the canon of scripture refers to a standard or the official list of inspired books that make up the Bible. So some books made it in and some didn't. There were, there were many books written. Um, some, as I just mentioned, were had glaring errors. Others, not necessarily. But the church used a set of criteria to determine which were inspired and which were not. I'm not saying that the church, and I hope no Catholic claims, that the church is any smarter or better than any other churches. It's simply God providing a way for us to know the truth. To recall, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the church does not boast, again, um, to be the best, the brightest, you know, the, the favorite child of, of God. Um, the church is simply what God has instituted to ensure that people across millennia can receive the truth. God provides a way for us to continue to receive his divine revelation in a beautiful, authentic way, without error. Speaking of Peter being the rock, uh, my youngest son is named Peter, and we actually named him after Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati, this wonderful, uh, wonderful saint from Turin, Italy, who lived at the beginning of the 20th century. But we also claim St. Peter, the first pope, the apostle, as uh, one of his patrons as well. And so his godfather, who's a priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, recently asked for birthday ideas for Peter, who just turned two. And uh, I said that, you know, he's in a stage of life where he really likes stacking things, so blocks and um, just different items that he can build, I don't know, castles, stacks, things out of. 
So his godfather got these blocks that were shaped like rocks. And they're, you know, they're wooden blocks, but they have these cool shapes. Uh, they're, you can, you know, build and stack them, but they look like, like little rocks. So as Peter opened his birthday present, I said, oh, thanks, Uncle Chrissy. That was so thoughtful. You know, he really likes to build and stack things. And then I catch uh, Uncle Chrissy saying to Peter on the side, like, yeah, your theology teacher mom didn't even pick up on the fact that I got you, Peter, rocks for your birthday. So thanks, Uncle Chrissy, for uh, not only getting a fun gift for Peter, but making it formative uh, for his faith. Uh, so after Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19, recall also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 32, Jesus prays that Peter's faith won't fail. And because Jesus is God, what God prays for happens. We also read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 20, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So God knew it would be important for us to receive divine revelation without error. And so he inspires the church as she determines um, and teaches and hands on many things, one of which way back in the beginning, was which books of the Bible are inspired and which are not. So you may have noticed, uh, depending on what Bible you have, what Bible your family and friends have, that Protestants and Catholics have different Bibles. Okay, there's lots of different styles and translations, um, but one of the most well-known Protestant translations is the King James Version of the Bible, and one of the most well-known, most widely used uh, Catholic versions of the Bible is the, the New American Bible. If you open a King James version of the Bible, you'll see that there are 66 books. If you open a New American Bible, you'll see that there are 73 books. So this, this difference dates back to before the time of Jesus. Um, the Protestant Old Testament canon, or list of 66 books, is based on the Palestinian or Hebrew canon used by Hebrew-speaking Jews in Palestine, whereas the Catholic Old Testament canon is based on the Alexandrian or Greek canon used by Greek-speaking Jews throughout the Mediterranean, uh, including Palestine. The city of Alexandria in Egypt possessed the greatest library in the ancient world, and during the reign of Ptolemy II Philadelphus, um, from about 285 to 246 BC, a translation was done of the entire Hebrew Bible. So recall that this is about 200 years before the time of Jesus, so we're just working with the Old Testament at this point. Um, a translation was done into Greek from the original Hebrew into Greek by about 70 or 72 scholars. So this Greek translation of the Old Testament is referred to as the Septuagint. That term Septuagint is simply Latin for 70, or the number of, of uh, people translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. This Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, became a super popular translation. Okay, Greek was the common language of the entire Mediterranean world by the time of Christ. Hebrew was a dying spoken language. Uh, Jews in Palestine usually spoke Aramaic. And so the Septuagint was a translation used by Jesus and the New Testament writers. 
A majority of the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament are from the Septuagint, or that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The entire New Testament is written in Greek. So the Hebrew canon, or list of books of the Old Testament, was established by Jewish rabbis in Palestine in about 100 AD. They rejected seven books from the Old Testament, which they couldn't find in the original Hebrew. Those seven books were Wisdom, Sirach, Judith, Baruch, Tobit, one of my favorite books of the Bible, and then First and Second Maccabees. Uh, they also rejected parts of Daniel and Esther. The Christian church, however, continued to use the Septuagint, which included those seven Old Testament books. For years, we find the list of 46 Old Testament and 27 New Testament books put out by bishops, scholars, saints, teachers of the church. And the church officially declares which books are inspired and therefore are part of the canon of scripture at the councils of Hippo in 393 AD and Carthage, 397 AD. And Pope St. Innocent approves this and closes the canon in 405 AD. This includes the Septuagint, 46 Old Testament books, and then 27 New Testament books. This goes untested for about 1,100 years. So Christians far and wide use that 73-book canon of Scripture, including those uh, contested seven books of the Old Testament. It's not until 1529 that Martin Luther proposes the Palestinian canon of 39, not 46, books in the Hebrew as the Old Testament canon and continues to accept the Catholic Church's New Testament canon of 27 books. While Martin Luther admits, quote, we are obliged to yield many things to the papists, i.e. Catholics, that they possess the word of God, which we received from them. Otherwise, we should have known nothing at all about it. He rejects her determination of the 46 Old Testament book canon in large part because he disagrees with some of the teachings contained in those seven books. So, for example, in 2 Maccabees, uh, you'll find references to purgatory, and Martin Luther uh, disagreed with that teaching. Uh, in fact, he wanted to throw out even more books the, from the New Testament, James, and Revelation, Old Testament, Esther. But he uses the Palestinian slash Hebrew canon as justification for keeping those seven books out of the Old Testament. It's interesting to note that in the 1940s, so 1946, 1947, along the northern shore of the Dead Sea in what's known as the Qumran Caves, Many of these seven contested Old Testament books were discovered in the original Hebrew. So the story goes, there was a, a shepherd kind of walking along the shore, tossing rocks, and as he tossed a rock into one of the caves, he heard glass shatter. He went inside, found these glass jars containing all these old, very old, Hebrew manuscripts that because of the very dry weather around the Dead Sea had been preserved for thousands and thousands of years. So some dated back to as early as the third century BC. So this is 1946, 1947 we're talking about. Um, he and then archaeologists who went in after him uh, discovered manuscripts from as early as the third century BC through the first century AD. 
This was one of the most important archaeological finds, and it removed the justification for removing those seven books of the Old Testament. So originally the the rabbis had said, we can't find these seven books in the original Hebrew. We only see them in the Greek translation. So we will remove them from the Old Testament canon. Martin Luther then in the 1520s said, because the rabbis, you know, way back when, couldn't find them in the original Hebrew. We can only find the Greek translation. I too will remove these from the Old Testament canon. However... They were then found in the original Hebrew. So in summation, this term Septuagint refers to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which includes 46 books. It's good to know this term um, because it's good to know why Protestants and Catholics have a different number of books in their Bibles. Um, It's also good to know that the justification for not including those seven books for example, the original Hebrew versions were not found, is now obsolete thanks to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's also important to note that the church uses the translation of the Old Testament that was used by Jesus and the New Testament writers. So there's a little history lesson for you uh, surrounding that term Septuagint. What we just did here is uh, referred to as apologetics. Apologetics is uh, simply... Uh, defense, an explanation for one's beliefs. So it's from the root word apologia, which is, again, a formal defense of one's beliefs. It doesn't have to do with apologizing. We're not apologizing here. Uh, We're simply explaining the why behind the what. Okay, this is why we believe what we believe. So now that you know that term, we're going to move on to another big term, the transcendentals. The transcendentals refer to truth, beauty, and goodness, or three properties of being. These are three properties of being, or that which is common to all beings. They are considered the first concepts since they can't be traced back to something preceding them. So this idea of transcendentals arose from what's known as medieval scholasticism, or the system of theology and philosophy taught in medieval European universities. And they taught that God himself is truth, beauty, and goodness itself. And we participate in these. Truth, beauty, and goodness are the ultimate desires of man. Man strives for perfection, which takes form through desire for perfect attainment of the transcendentals. So they transcend the limits of place and time. They're objective properties of all that exists. So no matter who you are, where you're from, what faith you practice, you're striving to know and participate in these objective realities. So truth, beauty, and goodness are not subjective or contingent on me, on time, on place, etc. but they exist. They are realities that exist independent of each of us, and we are attuned to them and strive to uh, know them and participate in them. So I'll just say a quick word about each. First, truth, this reality outside of me. Uh, Religion, education, etc. strives to know what and who that is. A few years into teaching, uh, I was reading in my alumni magazine about a fellow graduate who did this great activity in his classroom. 
And upon reading this article about what he did, I immediately co-opted it and then used it for years in my classroom. Um, what he did and what I then proceeded to do in my class was simply write on the board, does absolute moral truth exist? So I would do this day two or three at the beginning of each school year. I'd simply you know, write on the board, does absolute moral truth exist? I then explained to my students, hey, for our first assignment, we're going to do this little activity where I'd like to get to know you, what you think about the topic of truth. And so I'd like you to respond to this question. Does absolute moral truth exist? And they had naturally many questions. You know, how long does it need to be? Should I type it? Can I write it in a notebook paper? And I, I tried to be very easy breezy about it. I was like, you know what? It can be a, as long or as short as you want. Use as much time, as much space as you need to answer it. I simply want to know your thoughts. Do you think there is such a thing as absolute moral truth? So certain things that are true for everyone, everywhere, no matter what, and certain things specifically guiding our, or dictating our actions. So after asking a couple more rounds of questions, you know, what size font, um, when's it due, how will we be graded? Again, I tried to play it off, you know, kind of, kind of lightly and simply like, oh, I just wanna know, you know, it's due in two days, I'll collect your paper, I'll get it back to you, et cetera. So a day or two later, they turned in their responses to does absolute moral truth exist? I then took that stack of papers home and everyone who said absolute moral truth exists, of course, in big red marker, I would say, I agree, 100. And anyone who said absolute moral truth does not exist, um, I would just say, I disagree, zero. The next day I came into class, I said, okay, everyone, you know, I, I took a look at your essays and basically if I agreed with you, I gave you 100. If I disagreed with you, I gave you a zero. Any questions? And then I'd casually just hand back the papers. So remember, this is, you know, the first, second week of school. I don't really know the students too well. They don't really know me. And so they're first a very, very politely, but very, um, confusedly kind of glancing from side to side, looking at each other like, is this real? And then after a couple minutes, um, you know, someone would raise his or her hand and said, um, I thought the assignment was simply to answer the question. And I'd say, oh, it was. Um, but I did the assignment and I got a zero. And I'd say, oh, that's okay. I, I just disagreed with you. Um, but I did the assignment. Like, no, you totally did. But I just didn't like your answer, so I gave you a zero. So they're, again, looking at each other and looking at me, and then they start to get a little more bold. Well, that's not really fair. Like, teachers shouldn't do that. I said, ah, fair, shouldn't. You know, a number of students in the class said that there is no absolute moral truth, that it's subjective, and, you know, there's not necessarily a standard right or wrong, things you can or can't do, and so, you know, that's fine. You can totally believe that, but I, I think I can do this. You, you, you might think this is wrong, but, you know, that's wrong for you. It's, it's not wrong for me. I, I think it's fine. I think it's good. I think this is a great lesson. Well, then they grew more and more uh, indignant and rightfully so. And so it sparked this great debate in each class. You know, well, 
you know, you you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Teachers are meant to to educate and, you know, be fair and and listen to their students. And you didn't, you know, give us any of these qualifications or you didn't tell us this is how you were going to grade it. So we, you know, we would go back and forth and I, I let the discussion go on for, for most of the class. And then eventually in each class, someone got it. It was like the light bulb went on. Someone would say, oh, if absolute moral truth doesn't exist, then a teacher can grade however she wants. And that's fair to her, even if it's not fair to us. She's entitled to believe what she believes, and I'm entitled to believe what I believe. I can't impose my beliefs on her. She can't impose her on me, even though I was totally imposing my beliefs on on my students. So the lesson culminated in me writing on the board, absolute moral truth does not exist. And we worked our way to the understanding that that statement is true, or the person who says that statement believes that statement to be true. The person who says, you can't tell me what to do, or you can't grade this way, is telling you what to do, is telling you how to grade. And so I think most students got it. There, there were still some who, who uh, you know, didn't quite see it, but the lesson was meant to illustrate that truth exists whether we believe it or not. And oftentimes when we don't believe it or don't think we believe it, we still lean on that truth. We still ascribe to that truth so that when an injustice is done to us, when my teacher unfairly grades me, I'm rightfully incensed because that's unjust and that is not, um, you know, that teacher is not acting according to moral truth that pertains to everyone. So I I, uh, share this anecdote to illustrate that truth, we we live in an age where truth seems to be very subjective. You know, people hear people talk about like my truth. Um, But truth, this first of the the three transcendentals, um, is an objective reality that intuitively most of us, many of us know especially if that that truth is violated, especially if that truth is violated personally. Um, And so our perfection consists in coming to know that truth and order our lives in accordance with that truth. And because we are made for this, when we order our lives according to that truth, we attain greater happiness, not just in the next life, but in this life as well. The second of the transcendentals that we'll briefly mention today is goodness. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Whether that's in the New Testament or the Old Testament, all the time, God is good. So recall from a previous episode, we talked a little bit about how oftentimes the Old Testament God is portrayed as mean, and the New Testament God is portrayed as nice and good. But God who is one, God who is perfect, God who does not change, is good all the time. And I thought this week's, what we'll read in the second half of the episode, this week's selection from the Catechism highlights some beautiful passages from the Old Testament pointing to the goodness of God. So oftentimes, again, the Old Testament uh, is, is linked in people's minds to death, destruction, revenge, but when we hear some of these, these beautiful passages from the Old Testament, we're reminded God has been good all the time, 
and he will continue to be good, inviting us to be a part of that goodness. So we'll hear in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 214, God, quote, revealed himself to Israel as the one abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you look at the footnote there, footnote 27, this refers to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It's an Old Testament passage. It goes on to say, the psalmist says, I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Footnote 28 tells us that this passage comes from Psalm 138.2 and also refers to Psalm 85.11, both from the Old Testament. Paragraph 218 of the Catechism then says, in the course of its history, Israel was able to discover that God had only one reason to reveal himself to them, a single motive for choosing them from among all peoples, his sheer gratuitous love. If you look at footnote 38, that refers to three different passages from Deuteronomy, another Old Testament book. That paragraph goes on to say, Israel understood that it was again out of love, excuse me, that it was again out of love, that God never stopped saving them and pardoning their unfaithfulness and sins. So footnote 39 refers us to Isaiah and Hosea, two prophetic books of the Old Testament. Lastly, paragraph 220 of the Catechism says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Footnote 42 points us to the prophet Isaiah, Old Testament book. And then lastly, that paragraph in the Catechism quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, if you look at footnote 43, another Old Testament prophet, who says, quotes God as saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So um, I highlight these three passages from the Catechism, which highlight a number of Old Testament passages, to point to the fact that that God is good, goodness itself, and he has always been good, is good now, and will continue to be good. And he invites us to be a part of that goodness. Lastly, the third transcendental is beauty. You'll hear many evangelists today encouraging catechists, teachers of the faith, to quote-unquote lead with beauty. So modern man and woman often bristle at truth. So again, People talk about my truth, or many people will say, like, ah, oh, it was true for tr you, it's true for you, it's true for me, it's true for me. Um, modern man and woman also bristle at the good. Okay, you can't tell me what's right and wrong, you know, don't tell me what to do. However, it's hard to dispute beauty. It's hard to dispute the grandeur of cathedrals like Chartres and Notre Dame, the incredible artistry of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, or the beauty of a baby, one of God's most simple and awesome creations. God, who is beauty itself, leads us to the other transcendentals, truth and goodness, and to God himself, in a non-threatening way. So we experience beauty, and we're often drawn in, okay? Whereas when we experience or are told about truth, goodness, right and wrong, it's often like, mm, can be a little off-putting. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 239, says that by calling God Father, the language of faith indicates two main things, that God is the first origin of everything and transcendent authority, and that he is the same time 
is at the same time goodness and loving care for all his children. God's parental tenderness can also be expressed by the image of motherhood, which emphasizes God's imminence, the intimacy between creator and creature. The language of faith thus draws on the human experience of parents, who are in a way the first representatives of God for man. But this experience also tells us that human parents are fallible and can disfigure the face of fatherhood and motherhood. We ought therefore to recall that God transcends the human distinction between the sexes. He is neither man nor woman. He is God. So God reveals himself as father. He takes on human flesh as a man at the incarnation um, for good reason, which the church unpacks for us. But it's important to note that God, as the catechism does here, that God is neither male nor female. As the catechism says, he is God, which is completely other. So he transcends gender. But he creates us in his image and likeness, and in doing so, he creates us as male and female. Again, for good reason, but we'll discuss that in another episode. For now, let's reflect on this. All of us come from the same God, and God willing, return to the same God. We're created in God's image and likeness, and so we each reveal something of the beauty of God. Of course, sadly, because of sin, we can disfigure that beauty, but by the grace and healing power of God, we can enter more fully into the beauty that is God. So we'll all stand before God and look truth, goodness, and beauty in the face one day. In the meantime, let's open our minds to come to know him and our hearts to come to love him so that we can participate in these transcendentals, not just in heaven, but even now. We'll take a brief break, and then in the second half, we will read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 214 through 248. Thanks for staying with me. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. On the second half of the episode, we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 214 through 248. God, he who is, is truth and love. God, he who is, reveal himself to Israel as the one abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These two terms express summarily the riches of the divine name. In all his works, God displays not only his kindness, goodness, grace, and steadfast love, but also his trustworthiness, constancy, faithfulness, and truth. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. He is the truth, for God is light, and in him there is no darkness. God is love, as the Apostle John teaches. God is truth. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances endures forever. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. This is why God's promises always come true. God is truth itself, whose words cannot deceive. This is why one can abandon oneself in full trust to the truth and faithfulness of his word in all things. The beginning of sin and of man's fall was due to a lie of the tempter who induced doubt of God's word, kindness, and faithfulness. God's truth is his wisdom, which commands the whole created order and governs the world. God, who alone made heaven and earth, can alone impart true knowledge of every created thing in relation to himself. God is also truthful when he reveals himself. 
The teaching that comes from God is true instruction. When he sends his son into the world, it will be to bear witness to the truth. We know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding to know him who is true. God is love. In the course of its history, Israel was able to discover that God had only one reason to reveal himself to them, a single motive for choosing them from among all peoples as his special possession, his sheer gratuitous love. And thanks to the prophets, Israel understood that it was again out of love that God never stopped saving them and pardoning their unfaithfulness and sins. God's love for Israel is compared to a father's love for his son. His love for his people is stronger than a mother's for her children. God loves his people more than a bridegroom his beloved. His love will be victorious over even the worst infidelities and will extend to his most precious gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's love is everlasting. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Through Jeremiah, God declares to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. But St. John goes even further when he affirms that God is love. God's very being is love. By sending his only son and the spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. The Implications of Faith in One God Believing in God, the only one, and loving him with all our being has enormous consequences for our whole life. It means coming to know God's greatness and majesty. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Therefore, we must serve God first. It means living in thanksgiving. If God is the only one, everything we are and have comes from him. What have you that you did not receive? What shall I render to the Lord for all his bounty to me? It means knowing the unity and true dignity of all men. Everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. It means making good use of created things. Faith in God, the only one, leads us to use everything that is not God only insofar as it brings us closer to him and to detach ourselves from it insofar as it turns us away from him. My Lord and my God, take from me everything that distances me from you. My Lord and my God, give me everything that brings me closer to you. My Lord and my God, detach me from myself to give my all to you. It means trusting God in every circumstance, even in adversity. A prayer of St. Teresa of Jesus wonderfully expresses this trust. Let nothing trouble you. Let nothing frighten you. Everything passes. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God wants for nothing. God alone is enough. In brief, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The supreme being must be unique, without equal. If God is not one, he is not God. Faith in God leads us to turn to him alone as our first origin and our ultimate goal, and neither to prefer anything to him nor to substitute anything for him. Even when he reveals himself, God remains a mystery beyond words. If you understood him, it would not be God. The God of our faith has revealed himself as he who is, and he has made himself known as abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's very being is truth and love. Paragraph 2, The Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Christians are baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Before receiving the sacrament, they respond to a three-part question when asked to confess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I do. The faith of all Christians rests on the Trinity. Christians are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, not in their names. For there is only one God, the Almighty Father, His only Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Most Holy Trinity. The mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It is the mystery of God in Himself. It is therefore the source of all other mysteries of faith, the light that enlightens them. It is the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of the truths of faith. The whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveals himself to men and reconciles and unites with himself those who turn away from sin. This paragraph expounds briefly, one, how the mystery of the Blessed Trinity was revealed, two, how the Church has articulated the doctrine of the faith regarding this mystery, and three, how by the divine missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit, God the Father fulfills the plan of his loving goodness of creation, redemption, and sanctification. The fathers of the church distinguish between theology and economy. The theology refers to the mystery of God's inmost life within the Blessed Trinity, and economy to all the works by which God reveals himself and communicates his life. Through the oikonomia, the theologia, is referred to us, but conversely, the theologia illuminates the whole oikonomia. God's works reveal who he is in himself. The mystery of his inmost being enlightens our understanding of all his works. So it is, analogously, among human persons. A person discloses himself in his actions, and the better we know a person, the better we understand his actions. The Trinity is a mystery of faith in strict sense, one of the mysteries that are hidden in God which can never be known unless they are revealed by God. To be sure, God has left traces of his Trinitarian being in his work of creation and in his revelation throughout the Old Testament. But his inmost being as Holy Trinity is a mystery that is inaccessible to reason alone or even to Israel's faith before the incarnation of God's Son and the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Revelation of God as Trinity The Father Revealed by the Son Many religions invoke God as Father. The deity is often considered the Father of gods and of men. In Israel, God is called Father inasmuch as he is creator of the world. Even more, God is Father because of the covenant and the gift of the law to Israel, his firstborn son. God is also called the Father of the King of Israel. Most especially, he is the Father of the poor, or the orphaned and the widowed who are under his loving protection. By calling God Father, the language of faith indicates two main things, that God is the first origin of everything and transcendent authority, and that he is at the same time goodness and loving care for all his children. God's parental tenderness can also be expect, excuse me, expressed by the image of motherhood, which emphasizes God's imminence, the intimacy between creator and creature. The language of faith thus draws on the human experience of parents, who are in a way the first representatives of God for man. But this experience also tells us that human parents are fallible and can disfigure the face of fatherhood and motherhood. We ought therefore to recall that God transcends the human distinction between the sexes. He is neither man nor woman. He is God. He also transcends human fatherhood and motherhood, although he is their origin and standard. No one is father as God is father. 
Jesus revealed that God is Father in an unheard of sense. He is Father not only in being Creator, He is eternally Father in relation to His only Son, who is eternally Son only in relation to His Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. For this reason, the apostles confessed Jesus to be the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As the image of the invisible God, as the radiance of the glory of God, and the very stamp of his nature. Following this apostolic tradition, the church confessed at the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in 325 that the Son is consubstantial with the Father, that is, one only God with him. The Second Ecumenical Council, held at Constantinople in 381, kept this expression as formulation of the Nicene Creed and confessed the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father. The Father and the Son revealed by the Spirit. Before his Passover, Jesus announced the sending of another paraclete, or advocate, the Holy Spirit. At work since creation, having previously spoken through the prophets, the Spirit will now be with and in the disciples to teach them and guide them into all the truth. The Holy Spirit is thus revealed as another divine person with Jesus and the Father. The eternal origin of the Holy Spirit is revealed in his mission in time. The Spirit is sent to the apostles and to the church, both by the Father in the name of the Son and by the Son in person once he had returned to the Father. The sending of the person of the Spirit after Jesus' glorification reveals in its fullness the mystery of the Holy Trinity. The apostolic faith concerning the Spirit was confessed by the Second Ecumenical Council at Constantinople in 381. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. By this confession, the Church recognizes the Father as the source and origin of the whole divinity. But the eternal origin of the Spirit is not unconnected with the Son's origin. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is God, one and equal with the Father and the Son, of the same substance and also of the same nature. Yet he is not called the Spirit of the Father alone, but the Spirit of both the Father and the Son. The Creed of the Church from the Council of Constantinople confesses, with the Father and the Son he is worshipped and glorified. The Latin tradition of the Creed confesses that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, Filioque. The Council of Florence in 1438 explains, The Holy Spirit is eternally from the Father and Son. He has his nature and subsistence at once from the Father and the Son. He proceeds eternally from both as from one principle and through one spiration. And since the Father has through generation given to the only begotten Son everything that belongs to the Father, except being Father, The Son has also eternally from the Father, from whom he is eternally born, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. The affirmation of the Filioque does not appear in the creed confessed in 381 at Constantinople. But Pope St. Leo I, following an ancient Latin and Alexandrian tradition, had already confessed it dogmatically in 447, even before Rome, in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, came to recognize and receive the symbol of 381. The use of this formula in the creed was gradually admitted into the Latin liturgy between the 8th and 11th centuries. The 
introduction of the Filioque into the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed by the Latin liturgy constitutes, moreover, even today, a point of disagreement with the Orthodox churches. At the outset, the Eastern tradition expresses the Father's character as first origin of the Spirit. By confessing the Spirit as he who proceeds from the Father, it affirms that he comes from the Father through the Son. The Western tradition expresses first the consubstantial communion between Father and Son by saying that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, filioque. It says this legitimately and with good reason, for the eternal order of the divine persons in their consubstantial communion implies that the Father, as the principle without principle, is the first origin of the Spirit, but also that as Father of the only Son, He is with the Son, the single principle from which the Holy Spirit proceeds. This legitimate complementarity, provided it does not become rigid, does not affect the identity of faith and the reality of the same mystery confessed. This brings us to the end of our reading for today, the end of our episode. Next week, we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 249 through 278, and we'll continue to talk more about the Trinity. Three persons, one God, one God, three persons. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.